Where the People Are, Chapter 4 You're spry for a dead man, Wade commented to the shiny chrome ceiling, tapping his fingers across a shiny chrome table. He leaned back in his comfy office chair, and his attention wandered, pulled by the windowless room and the fun off-colored paneling across the walls that made him think of spring-mounted internal security measures, a.k.a. modern Gatling-style weapons that popped out of the walls in evil-dude lairs. Fun, fun, fun. You know, the cartel he'd wrecked in South America had some of those. That, and tanks, jets, and rocket launchers. Boy, that was an awesome assignment. Most criminals got the semi-automatic level and called it a day. Of course, the government had the exact opposite problem. They didn't know when to quit. Sometimes that tenacity was great, resulting in uber-hunks like the American dream in action. But most of the time it was bad, resulting in awful things like Hydra surviving World War II and people like Francis setting up mutant super-slave factories. It was generally Wade's preference not to work with nor talk to government bodies. But here he was. "'I have to say, I'm surprised you came,' Phil Coulson replied. "'Mr. Hammer doesn't strike me as a persuasive figure.' Wade lifted his head, eyeing the spook and his henchman. "'Henchwoman?' "'He promised me his left testicle on his firstborn.' Get on with it. For the fifteenth time, he spun in the spinny chair. Ooh, sparkles. Very well, Coulson commented dryly. He nodded at his henchwoman, who Wade was going to pretend he didn't recognize. The less the cavalry knew about the Russian mark he'd sniped out from under her nose, the better. We have an extensive file on you, Mr. Wilson, Melinda May commented, tapping on a tablet. Seventeen holographic windows opened up around them showing different surveillance videos from different assignments from the last couple of years. Wade's hand clapped against the table, and his spinning came to an abrupt stop. He looked up at them in awe. They'd somehow even picked up a recording back from when he was in Special Forces. Wade laughed out loud at the sight of a six-foot-two heartthrob in all black silently wipe out the leader of a terrorist cell. Someone in the Canadian military was going to be super pissed. "'My murdering skills are pretty legendary,' Wade made a heart with his hands, framing it around hot Wade's butt. Ah, if only he lived in a universe where self-cest was a thing. Masturbation. Fuck. And getting less and less discreet as time goes on, May replied, eyes narrowing. Wade pulled back at that a little, head-whipping between those two government-trained poker faces. He chuckled again, but this time it was 100% sarcasm. 
I'm sorry, I thought this was a job interview. Why are we jumping straight to the performance evals? May and Coulson looked at each other. Then Coulson leaned forward, folding his hands over the table. I'm still trying to understand who Wade Wilson is. Well, I know who you are, Wade fired back, tone saucy. People threw parties when they heard you were dead. Coulson's eyebrows lifted. That's hurtful. I'm hurt. You should be, Wade confided, leaning back in his chair again. He propped his boots on the table, folding his hands over his stomach as he recalled. Finger foods only, flat sodas, no balloons. Now when Fury died, oh boy, strippers, confetti, and top-shelf liquor for everyone. Wade slammed his fist against the table, tense, ready to leap off the chair in a moment's notice. Of course, that fucker's probably not dead either, huh? Director Fury's death is a matter of public record, May said, not really answering. And S.H.I.E.L.D. doesn't exist, Wade shot back mockingly. Right. After a moment, he giggled and sank back in the chair, folding his arms behind his head. Just joshing you. I don't care. Government conspiracy, secret agencies and whatnot, so not my area. How do you all even keep your lies straight? I can barely track what time it is. And what is your area, Mr. Wilson? Colson asked. Wade tensed. Whatever the fuck I want it to be, Chuckles, he said darkly, voice low. Colson stared at him for a while before nodding. Of course, he said. Wade immediately knew he wasn't going to like what the spook said next. Let's recap. You honed your skills on terrorists and enemies of the state as a soldier for a number of years. Then you were dishonorably discharged and became a mercenary. As a mercenary, however, your targets remained local and small-time, and with an odd, altruistic bend? Coulson tipped his head to May. What was it again? Bad guys who fuck with worse guys. Wade blinked wildly. He swung a finger between the two of them, whispering, Does ABC allow you guys to curse, or... Then you suddenly rebranded yourself as Deadpool and uprooted 17 international crime organizations over the course of three years. Popped up on a lot of people's kill lists, you did. Not that that did anything, what with your unique... talents. Coulson paused. His tone changed. Then, Thanos happened. Fuck that guy! Agreed, Coulson said easily. His eyes narrowed. Following that, and in the span of only 18 months, you killed somewhere between 250 to 450 invading alien beings up and down the East Coast. Wade struggled to see the issue. Well, you're welcome. He reached across the table. High five? His hand was ignored. After an awkward, prolonged silence, Wade retreated on his side of the table, his chair squeaking in empathy. Coulson smiled faintly, but it was a shallow expression, like the kind of practice smile you gave your house's new furry friend after they tore the shit out of something expensive, and you weren't allowed to scream at them. For just a moment, put yourself on my side of the table, Mr. Wilson, Coulson said finally. Why do you think I'm concerned that you want to move to New York on a permanent basis? Wade paused, thinking. He didn't have to reach. You think I'm escalating. New York has a lot of high-profile targets, May pointed out, including the home base of our world's one defense against another Thanos. Wade kicked his boots off the table, shooting to his feet. You take that back, he snapped, seething. I am pro-Avengers. Super pro-Avengers. Especially the hot ones. When the spooks just stared at him, Wade rocked back on his heels. Plaintively, he hissed, 
Ever since Iron Man rode a nuke into space and saved us from an early Chitauri occupation, people a world over have tried carving a piece out of your special little boy band. Do you know how many Avenger markers I've had to trace back to their original clients? 67, May said. Her eyebrows pressed together as she frowned at him. Mr. Wilson, there is a reason why we're extending this offer to you. Coulson nodded along with her. You are unorthodox, unfriendly, and mildly psychotic. I disagree wildly with your methods, and under different circumstances, I would be meeting with a team to extract, detain, and subdue you to contain your activities. Wade's jaw tightened. Is this where you start threatening my loved ones? Coulson paused at that. Wade didn't clarify. Didn't have to. Vanessa had to be on the dossier. So too were probably Al and Weasel. Dopinder, Dom, Flameboy, and Thanos Light. The Tin Man and his lesbian daughter, X-Force. Wade knew what his pressure points were. For a merc, he had an awful lot of emotional connections. Wade might hate himself sometimes, but torture, mutation, a shitty upbringing, and his time in the military didn't do much to deaden his warm and gushy feelings for certain people. The intent of this meeting is to develop a relationship, Coulson said finally. I'd like for it to be a positive one. Wade stared at him. Good answer. Wade slowly lowered himself back to his chair. You have a fancy contract for me? A contract between an organization that doesn't exist and a man who doesn't honor contracts? That would be a waste of time, don't you think? Coulson clasped his hands together. I am a man of my word. Well, I'm sure as hell not. Wade lied baldly. You'll want to be, said Coulson. Wade sighed heavily at this, squirming. He looked up at the ceiling. He looked back at the walls. He tapped his fingers against the table again. Then, unable to delay any longer, he sighed again, saying, Terms? 200,000 base salary. 200,000 base salary, 20,000 extra for every mission or assignment he took for the spooks and their super-secret super-spook squad. It was pennies compared to some of his other marks. But with it came benefits. Like the shiny pass with S.H.I.E.L.D. and its sister agencies, which was a valuable commodity Wade couldn't stick a price tag on. Wade could also turn down assignments if he didn't agree with them, which was a sticking point he ended up having with his military career. But it had a hell of a lot of strings attached. Regular reporting, no weapons budget, any other expenses had to be paid out of pocket too. If Wade ever got caught, they weren't saving his ass. They would leave him out to dry. May was very clear about that. And Wade lost his assignment veto power when the threat rating of the mission exceeded a certain level. Basically, if more than 1,000 people were threatened by his inaction, a veto was a no-go. Which was really goddamn unfair, considering where he was trying to move. New York was tightly packed as it was. A badly timed fight with the wrong guys could endanger at least 1,000 people very quickly. And then there was this shit. We get to control any marks you take outside of the arrangement, May pushed. No, Wade snapped. You get to give me a list of people I'm not supposed to kill, and I'll kindly review it every time I take an assignment. He crossed his arms over his chest. Don't be a smartass and give me the freaking census. You get 50 names and not one more. May barely blinked. 100. Absolutely fucking not, Wade barked. He liked her. 75, Coulson countered, chin in his hand. And I'll put in a good word with Tony Stark about your place with the Avengers. Wade froze at that. Ouch. Well, wasn't that a pressure point Wade didn't expect to be pressed? Then he nodded. Fine, Wade grinned. 
See, Clark, now you're speaking my language. It's Phil. Eh, I don't like it. Wade turned his gaze to the woman. Is that on the table, or... Absolutely not, she said flatly. Wade pouted. Aw. Then a thought occurred to him. Hey, I'll bump the list of names to 85 if you help me and my girl secure our apartment in New York. Wade grinned when that, of all things, was the request that took the spooks by surprise. Yeah, we found a nice one-bedroom apartment in Manhattan. Not too shabby, not too expensive. Has an adorable kitchen nook that made me go bananas. Anywho, the landlord is being a cock tease. Won't commit. Won't send me the lease. Wade made a circular motion with his hand. Something about me being a mutie freak? I'd handle it myself, but I think we all know how that would end up. His apartment would be decorated with a lot more than their old furniture, was what he was trying to say. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, kill, kill. Coulson seemed to brighten up slightly. Housing discrimination? We can help with that. Of course you can, you government fuck. What's the address? The paint roller slipped out of Vanessa's hand. Grumbling half-heartedly, she sank down next to it, sitting on the sliding plastic that protected the wood floors. Her back was aching. So was her arms. But now their new living room was no longer an exorcist green. Instead, it was a calmer tan. She did that. All by herself, even. Vanessa closed her eyes briefly, feeling melancholy dance around her mind. She wanted to blame the paint fumes or the surprisingly depressing Celine Dion song that was stuck on repeat on Wade's music player. The first problem, she'd address by opening up the windows as far as they could go. The second problem, though, was insurmountable. With her own records and CDs lying at the bottom of a box somewhere else in the apartment, she was stuck with Wade's, and this song meant something to him, clearly. Someone knocked at the front door. Her head shut up. Wade? Body pain forgotten, she quickly got to her feet and opened the door. But it wasn't Wade. It was their new landlord. He blinked rapidly, the red little man mopping up his sweating forehead with a cloth. He smiled, his gap-toothed grin and spare porn stash wiggling with the effort to look friendly. Looks amazing, Miss Wilson, he stammered. She met this compliment with a silent, dubious eyebrow. This was the same fuckwad who turned purple and screamed at her and taught her that dirty mutant fucker was an insult instead of a statement of fact. He wilted visibly under her gaze. Just wanted to make sure you were settling in, all right? Please let me know if you need anything else. Pleasure doing business. He stared at her for a moment longer before hurrying out of the apartment, like the hounds of hell were nipping at his heels. Or one Deadpool. Vanessa closed the door behind him. After a beat, she smiled. The landlord hadn't even met Wade yet in person, and he was this scared? <laughs> the government spooks had certainly lived up to their name. Vanessa turned back to the wall, her smile turning into a frown. It had been two weeks since she moved in, and Wade wasn't even in New York yet. The spooks already had him on a job. He'd made her swear up and down to leave at least all of the furniture moving and half of the boxes for him, but she didn't listen well. Already she'd nudged and shoved and poked the living room into a rough approximation of what it would eventually look like, plus plastic sheeting to protect everything from paint drips. A smarter person would have painted first, but she did so like multitasking. However, any sort of smug satisfaction at doing exactly the opposite of what Wade had asked was now fading in the absence of him. All she felt was alone. Alone and headachy. What a Susie homemaker you turned out to be, Nessie, she muttered. Props to Wade for making a proper wife out of her. 
Temper flaring, she pushed the box closer to her. It spun off the stack, tipping over and spilling kitchen utensils over the floor. Vanessa darted back just in time to avoid the knife block crushing her toes, but swore anyway, crouching to deal with the mess. The last thing to come out of the box was an apron with B. Arthur on it. Her temper abruptly died. She cradled the apron to her chest. She closed her eyes briefly, smirking. This was why Wade didn't want her to do the apartment. He knew her mind went to shitty, dark places when she was alone. Wade wasn't her father's friends, leering at her and coveting her and shoving her into a male fantasy box before Vanessa was old enough to know the difference between girls and boys. If anyone in their relationship was a Susie homemaker, it was Wade. Wade did all the cooking in the house, and although they regularly fought over the cleaning, he never expected her to be any more inclined than him to want to clean. And if she wasn't doing the whole homemaking thing right, then she sure as hell wasn't succumbing to the urge to be barefoot and pregnant. Hell, Wade didn't pressure her about the baby thing after that one night in the bathroom, even though she'd basically promised him. Vanessa was relieved. She wanted a kid still. She really did. But Wade insisted a family didn't need a kid to be whole. They already were one and had plenty of extended members too, creepy uncles included. But sometimes it helped to think that the baby was around the corner. Maybe not soon. Maybe not even this year. But there still, waiting patiently in the wings for Vanessa to make her move. And maybe it was maladaptive, or whatever, but she liked it the same way she liked hearing about other people's stories of the Infinity Affair. It always implied that her bad days had a conclusion— like an end of a chapter book that she could point at and say, Huh, remember that day? That was when Mommy got high off paint fumes and got melodramatic about things that didn't matter. What did matter was she existed. She was real. She was alive. She was living and she had Wade still. And between her and Wade, they had a new home and the Big Apple, the big city Wade so dearly loved. Vanessa strung the apron around her neck, standing on wobbly legs, she grabbed her phone and walked over to the wall-length mirror in the bedroom. She glared at her reflection a bit. Then she thought about Wade and took a photo. The phone camera wasn't bad. She preferred her big camera. There was a stillness behind her eyes she still didn't like. But she was there, genuinely smiling. There was paint in her hair and paint smudged across her cheek. But she was comfortable in a pair of old leggings and an old wham shirt of Wade's. Vanessa stared at the result a little bit longer. She looked... She looked like she was getting better. Vanessa's chest swelled in an odd jubilance, and before she thought it through, she automatically looked for him. What do you... think? She was going to ask. Going to say out loud. Going to direct at a person in the room. A person who wasn't there. A person who wasn't Wade. Who wasn't their future kid. Who wasn't even their creepy landlord. Vanessa closed her eyes and let herself wallow in the sudden aching loneliness of it the desire to race back to a gold-inked world. Then she squelched it. That desire should have died at the bottom of the bathroom tub in Boston, along with the trust she had in herself. But it didn't. But she was stronger than that. Stronger than her experiences. Stronger than her urges. Stronger than the temptation to go back to that world. Just one last time. Well, I think it looks good, she said to the empty air. I always look good. She sent the picture off to Wade so he could see what he was missing. So maybe he would come back home just a little sooner. The stairs up to Aunt May's apartment were long, and not going to lie, a bit agonizing, 
for all the wrong reasons. May opened the door at the first knock. Peter shrank slightly at the sight of her, sticking his hands in his pockets. He was in so much trouble. This belong to you? the cop asked. Peter fought the urge to throw off the man's hand on his shoulder. That would be rude. Jefferson Davies had been nothing but kind to him, all things considered. May smiled thinly. Yep. Her eyes darted over Peter's face, lingering on his sore mouth and throbbing cheekbone. After a beat, she stepped aside. Cowed, Peter dropped his head and approached her, leaving the cops behind. He paused, turning back. Thanks for the ride, sir. You didn't have to do that. You're welcome, Davis said after a beat, smiling warmly at him. Then he frowned. Kid, know that it's not that we don't appreciate you standing up for that man. Peter paused, letting the words wash over him, letting the words throw him back in time to the street and those kids picking on that homeless guy, kicking and spitting and shoving and... One of them had been wearing a Spider-Man hoodie. Davies mistook his expression as something else. Just let the cops do their job next time, okay? The next person you stand up to might have a gun, and kids like you don't come back from things like that. There was a lot of things that kids like him didn't come back from. A lot of things he'd experienced and lived through, nevertheless. From taking on alien weapons dealers, to shouldering the weight of a fallen building, to traveling in space, to fight a guy who literally destroyed half the universe. But all that didn't matter anymore, so Peter didn't say anything. Instead, he exchanged a look with May and walked deeper in his home, fists clenching and unclenching at his sides. Polite kid. Good kid. Davies said quickly. He'd been so kind to Peter, even when Peter was sitting in his back seat. He was probably a dad. May laughed. You have no idea how much, she said. Peter walked away quickly before he could hear anything else. It had been a full month since the guardians dropped him off, and he felt like he was dying a little more every day. But that was hardly Peter Quill's fault. No, if Peter had to blame anyone, he would blame himself mostly. Tony Stark a little bit, too. Former Secretary of State General Thaddeus E. Thunderbolt Ross? A whole heck of a lot. Behind him, May thanked the officer and closed the door between them. Peter's attention was caught by that. By her. Somewhere, a phone started ringing. May started walking to him, shook her head, and went to the kitchen, digging through her purse. Peter slowly eased onto the couch, eavesdropping. What? May hissed into the speaker. There was a pause. Yes, that's how I answer the phone, especially when I know it's you. Once upon a time, Peter thought dully, he could hear the other side of the conversation. May had a temper, but she was usually sweet. There was only one person that inspired that kind of instantaneous negative response, and, as much as Peter didn't like it, he understood it. He could barely talk to Mr. Stark himself these days, and Peter knew, in his heart of hearts, that Mr. Stark had done his best to protect Peter from the very second Peter landed back on Earth. He remembered it in flashes. We, uh, we have an unprecedented opportunity here. Mr. Stark's quicksilver smile, apologetic and guilty. Keep your head down. Don't ask questions. His grip tight on Peter's shoulders as he swept Peter inside the Avengers compound. A grim, tired reporter from 2019 announcing to her much-diminished audience... The vigilante known as Spider-Man is dead. Peter screwed up his face, flinching away from the remembered words. Look, I'm his family, May continued in the other room, voice muffled. I can handle this without you coming and being so... 
You. Besides, I don't think he wants to talk to you right now. No. Peter wasn't exactly in the mood for company. He lifted his hands, eyeing his scraped knuckles. His lip and cheek were swelling heatedly. Peter cringed faintly, not at the pain, but rather at the lecture he'd get from Tony. The criticisms over what he was doing with his new lease on life. A normalcy. Peter missed the end of the conversation. His hearing wasn't so great now. His aunt swept into the living room, calm like she wasn't just yelling at Tony Stark on the phone. So, she said brightly, have a chance to review Midtown's Accelerated Learner Program? Right, his reason for leaving the apartment. Peter sat up, rubbing the tip of his nose. Mr. Harrington said I'm not qualified. The teacher hadn't been cruel about it, just very firm that the program was designed for students who had missed a year or so of schooling because of the Infinity Affair. It wasn't for troubled kids who went MIA after the fact. Get a GED. It's basically the same thing, the teacher said before closing the door on Peter's face. It wasn't the same thing. It looked different on people's transcripts and resumes, which was why the Accelerated Learners course was created. Right now, Peter looked like a dropout. Even worse, he looked like a dropout and a runaway who had selfishly used the Infinity Affair as a shield for his melodrama. May twitched. Her gaze turned fiery. R.I.P. Mr. Harrington. But she bit down on her temper with a thin smile. Well, your principal disagrees, she said cheerfully, stepping out of the room. She came back with a thick binder of papers, dropping it into Peter's open hands. I spoke to him personally and signed you up, just in case... Um... May paused awkwardly, tiptoeing around the fact that Peter had barely been out of the apartment in days. Anyway, Mr. Morita and I both believe you can test out of most of these. At her gesturing, Peter obligingly opened the binder to the neatly bookmarked pages that marked the courses he had left to officially graduate. It was a tiny gesture, but May brightened up at his acquiescence, her false bravado fading under real confidence. She perched on the arm of the couch, wrapping an arm around Peter's shoulders. Peter watched her wordlessly. He was a shitty, shitty nephew. She pointed at an orange tab section over his shoulder. I set up your first test for the last Friday of the month. It's on this topic. I know, I know, it's soon. But it's physics, your favorite. And like that, May warmly walked him through the rest of the courses. There were about four classes he could test out of, but he'd still have to sit through another history course. He'd also had two years' worth of assignments for English, but he decided on how fast or how slow to sit through them. Peter could test out of most of his science and math classes, no problem. Morita even left a handwritten note that, with sufficient evidence, one year of science could be waived because of his internship with Stark Industries. An internship that never really existed for a man who never wanted him, and a team that would never find him. Peter's shoulders tightened. Well, that wasn't exactly fair, was it? Again, he remembered that first day home in pieces. Jittery, Mr. Stark, checking for bugs like a prisoner in his own home. You have to believe that I was looking for you. You have to. We reverse-engineered everything we could get our hands on and still couldn't get out of this damn galaxy. The grip he had on Peter's shoulders, like he wanted to hug him, but just didn't have the time or safety to do so. Thor only knows the realms. Nebula had maps in her head and no familiar context for us to work from. Strange was no help at all. A pathway has to be set or he has to know his destination very well. Between all of us, we couldn't pinpoint Titan on a single map. A harshly whispered plea. I never stopped looking for you, kid. Peter pushed away the binder, suddenly nauseated. What's the point? May blinked at him rapidly. What's the point? She pointed at the binder. 
Your future is the point. Peter shoved the binder aside, launching to his feet. Ned and MJ were both at MIT, and Peter longed to be with them. It had been his dream school, but no matter how Morita packed the scenario on paper, it was just going to look like he was a monumental screw-up, so far away from MIT material it was laughable. And he could have dealt with all that, really. It wasn't the end of the world. The end of the world was an alien deciding that half of the universe didn't deserve to exist, and Peter had survived that. There were bigger things in life than Lady Macbeth and her damn spots. But one of those bigger things was... It was... Spider-Man. And Tony Stark took him away. You would love Helen Cho and what she can do with nanotech in medical settings. This isn't one of hers, though. This is mine. Self-replicating, self-sustaining, more or less. Sophisticated enough to operate on individual genes in a strand of DNA, able to bind and to neutralize genetic abnormalities that cause illness, disease, organ failure. A playlist of news stories of people like him, families like him, new targets under the ever-tightening accords controlled by General Ross. I painted a picture of you, you see? Peter Parker, my plucky little intern, straying too close to the fight, getting picked up by a bunch of aliens looking for souvenirs. In the end, you were a statistic— one of many people stolen during the Infinity Affair. Spider-Man doesn't fit with that story, and you know it. Spider-Man was on a different ship, following a different storyline with a different ending. The clever ending of a suit's recording on a faraway planet. Thanos slamming him so hard against the ground, it looked like he'd been murdered rather than merely winded. Ross is coming for you, and he's going to take you, if there is any bit of abnormality in your blood that can't be chalked up as a normal space debris or space radiation. You're never going home, I don't care if it's right or legal, he won't let you. You'll automatically become a threat in his eyes when he sees the mutation. You don't get it. This is a post-truth world, Peter. If you're going to get anywhere, you need to get ahead of the lie and control it. Sell it. I have the roadmap, kiddo. All you need to do is follow it, and quickly. Coulson can give us only so much time. Heat flushed up his face. Slowly he turned to face his aunt. What future do I have without... Without... Spider-Man. May stared at him for a long moment, but before the first heavy tear fell, she was up and engulfing him into a giant, slightly painful hug. After a moment, he reciprocated. It wasn't just that he'd lost Spider-Man. He'd lost himself, too, or at least the body he was familiar with. Just last week, he spent half the day not being able to see. Everything was awash in a sea of blinding white light, like when he used to hyper-focus and pass out at the sight of windshields in the summer sun. Then he was nailed in the head with a rogue basketball. The kids from the neighbor court apologized, but for a whopping twenty minutes, his vision finally corrected. Now it was getting blurry around the edges again. He was starting to worry that he might have to renew his glasses prescription for the first time in years. His strength was gone. His healing went back to being slow. His senses could no longer be trusted, and his sixth sense, that extra bit of warning he liked to call his spidey sense, absolutely useless and it didn't warn him that the bullies picking on that homeless guy had a taller, meaner friend. Instead, it screamed at him randomly in the middle of the night, waking him up out of a dead sleep. The first time it did that, Peter stuck to the ceiling for half a second before falling and almost breaking his arm against his desk. Some tiny, petty part of him wanted to tell Mr. Stark that his cure, by whatever mechanisms it bound to his spidey genes and made them look normal, was only partially effective. It got him through military testing without raising any alarms, but that was it. Mr. Stark might as well remove the nanotech in Peter's blood. If only Mr. Stark hadn't made it permanent, like a cap welded shut on a water bottle, he'd said. The water was still there, 
but no one was going to drink out of it. Peter could have dealt with that. He could live being a shittier Spider-Man. He'd figure a way around his worsening powers. But Mr. Stark's cure wasn't stagnant at all. No, it seemed to be getting more and more effective as time moved on, as it propagated and arrested all expressions of his genetic abnormality. With every day that passed, Peter was getting increasingly and horribly closer to being... normal. And he just couldn't take it. Like she knew the direction of his thoughts, May clutched Peter a little tighter to her. Then she released him a little, petting his hair. Okay, okay, you're mourning. I didn't lose anyone, Peter muttered. You're still mourning. For Spider-Man, right? Instead of responding, Peter rubbed his sleeve over his face, eyes directed downward. Neither I nor Mr. Stark have been particularly sympathetic to that. That was a delicate way of putting it. Mr. Stark's preference on the matter was something he made absolutely clear from the get-go, and May's sheer relief at the announcement Peter no longer had powers would be burned on his retinas for all time. May lightly gripped his shoulders and squeezed a little, catching his attention. But try and see it from my perspective a little. Her mouth was trembling, and her eyes were shiny. You were gone for two years. Two years, Peter! She shook her head. I don't miss Spider-Man. Spider-Man took my nephew from me and dropped him on an alien planet. I made those choices myself, May, Peter interrupted, and they were the right ones. Bullshit, she fired back. You were a child. You had no business fighting that, that. Peter jerked away from her. It was my responsibility. If something that bad is happening, I need to act. May crossed her arms over her chest. Well, it's no longer your responsibility. No superpower, no superhero duty. Deal with it. How quickly their conversations had turned, Peter would think later. From hugs to shouting, the swing alone should have alerted him to step back and breathe a little. Instead, he rode the emotion and made things worse. Right, Peter said bitterly. He stalked past her, beelining for his room. Because that's going to keep me safe. Peter didn't get that far. May was tracking him, not ready to end the conversation. What was that? Peter spun on his heel. He glowered at her for a second before snapping. I don't need superpowers to put myself in harm's way. May, look at Ben! Peter could have slapped her and hurt her less. He regretted it instantly, because before his eyes, his aunt was withdrawing. Light was fading out of her expression. Her shoulders were falling. She looked infinitely smaller and older than she had just a few minutes ago, when she was happily leading him through his new education plan. Peter was a shitty, shitty nephew. May's spine straightened. You're right, she said quietly tone defeated. She looked anywhere but at him. You don't need to be a superhero to be on the wrong end of a runaway bus or an at asshole with a gun. She looked up at him, her eyes glittering with suppressed tears. We're all going to meet death someday. You don't have to run towards it. She turned away from him, leaving. Unable to help himself, Peter bounded after her, looping his arms around her waist and burying his forehead against her shoulder blades. I'm sorry, May, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Still turned away from him, May sucked in a heavy, wet breath, the pain in it causing tears to spring to Peter's eyes. Peter missed Ben the most in moments like this. He used to be a buffer when his temper and hers clashed like this. When he died, they built up protective walls around each other, trying to fill in the void as best as they could. He'd become so eager to please her, and she'd become so eager to see him smile that they rarely fought anymore. He'd forgot about how they would twist each other in arguments until they both wanted to scream. Peter struggled to remember the pattern. Normally, she'd retreat, or he would, and apologies would come the next day, 
When Ben was alive, he'd spend the time softening their feelings around the argument itself. When Ben was dead, all Peter would ruminate on was the guilt of being at odds with the one family he had left. But today, she broke the pattern. They both did. Peter, when he reached out to apologize, and May, when she turned around to accept it. I am too. I'm sorry you're suffering, sweetheart. Peter was taller than her now. That didn't stop her from pulling his head down to her shoulder. He hugged her tightly, gratefully. It'll be okay. I'll be okay. I just need to process. Then honestly, he said, I never wanted to make you cry. Seems like it's the only thing you Parker boys do consistently. She teased thickly. She tugged on a strand of his hair. Snickering, he sagged into her, letting himself be sixteen, thirteen, eight again. After a beat, though, she stopped letting him hide. She cupped his face with her hands. I know it's everything you wanted. I know it let you be a hero and make a change in the world. Her eyebrows needled together, briefly apologetic. But Peter, I don't want that life for you. I never wanted that life for you. I wanted you to be happy and be successful and be loved and die peacefully in your bed at the age of 110. Peter blinked at her. That's a tall order. Well, as it turns out, I'm a demanding mom. May smoothed his hair back, tucking one of the longer curling strands behind his ear. Then she flattened her hands against his shoulders. I know you need time to process. Let me know if there's something I can do to make it easier on you. Peter smiled shyly. Just be you. Flattery will get you everywhere. May kissed his cheek noisily. Brr, you're cold. Hot cocoa? Peter followed her to the kitchen, utterly exhausted, while she bustled around, making up her special hot chocolate recipe. Peter gave in to temptation and put his head down on the kitchen table. He let himself imagine a bit if he'd taken Quill up on his offer to stay a guardian. He'd be fighting weird and weirder aliens right now. He'd be figuring out what made Quill's ship work. He'd be sparring with Gamora and Drax, arguing with Quill about the merits of 80s movies. He'd be chatting and getting to know Rocket, Groot, and Gamora's homicidal but totally badass-looking sister. He'd still be Spider-Man. But none of it would be on Earth. None of it would be near Aunt May or Mr. Stark or his friends or his city, New York, which he still loved so much. There was a knock on the front door. May paused, looking over. Now who could that be? she questioned quietly, turning the heat off on the stove. She went to the front part of the apartment. Peter rubbed his eyes with the heel of his palm, then rubbed them again when May hurried back into the room, hands clasped in front of her chest worriedly. Um, don't hate me, but I may have invited someone over. Peter hastily wiped at his face again, feeling ill-prepared. He pushed out of his seat, tugging self-consciously at his clothes, aware that his own blood still dotted the collar of the stretched-out Midtown High sweater. Would May really invite Tony Stark after ripping him a new one on the phone? Ugh. Peter didn't know what Mr. Stark would lecture him more about, being reckless now that he had no superpowers, or being an asshat who made his aunt cry. Peter so wasn't in the mood. But May's guest had followed her in, and it wasn't Mr. Stark at all. Ned Leeds took up the entire doorway, but didn't stop to stare. Instead, his friend dropped his head, barreling into Peter with almost enough force to knock him over. Whoa! If Peter thought May's hugs were tight, Ned's were a whole other level of desperate. The kind of tight that came with drowning victims and floating devices. Oh my god, Ned said very quietly in the vicinity of Peter's left armpit. Holy crap, dude! Peter greeted, voice coming out a little wheezy. 
Ned released him almost instantly. Holy crap yourself, Ned countered, face lit up like sunshine. Peter laughed in awe, which started off a series of pats and claps of each other's shoulders as they circled each other like excited puppies. Exclamations and how have you been's tripped out of their mouths without a care if they were repetitive, nonsensical, or already said. May smiled to herself and backed out of the room, leaving them to themselves. Laughing, Peter could hardly believe his eyes. Ned was taller than Peter now, by a hair, and broader than Peter remembered. His thick hair was long for once, and pulled back into a neat ponytail. He had a full but neatly trimmed beard. Under that beard was the same Ned Leeds beam, full-hearted and genuine. Peter was a little jealous of the facial hair, and let Ned know all about it. Who the hell let you go through second puberty when I was gone? Even Ned's voice was slightly deeper. Ned tugged on his beard self-consciously. You like it? All the engineering students are doing it. Well, the guy ones, anyway. What are you doing here? It's... it's in the middle of the semester. And MIT wasn't a school you just ditched for fun. Ned swatted his arm. Dude, you were dead. Missing. Of course I was going to haul butt back here when I heard you were back. He went starry-eyed with interest. So, like, space? Peter grinned. So cool. Cool. They took the chat back to the living room. The second they sat back down on the couch, Peter launched into a rundown of everything that happened from the moment Peter ditched their field trip. Classified what? It was through Ned's awe that Peter recalled some of his own buried excitement about the things he'd been through. Like Titan? Minus the scariness and the loneliness. Totally sick. Space travel? Awesome. And the fact that he'd fought alongside the Avengers and the Guardians and an actual wizard? Wow. How freaking cool was that? The pent-up giddiness carried him through almost the whole story. That is, until he got to the point of where he was acting out the Guardian's impromptu landing in the middle of the Avengers compound, and his friend's subsequent need to haul ass out of there. The incoming military helicopters. Mr. Stark's strained attempt to get him inside, and relatively hidden. The maze that was the Avengers compound, so that he had enough time to talk to Peter alone. The not-so-welcoming welcome party. Whoa, Ned said slowly, eyes huge. Peter stopped the story. There was nothing worth sharing after that. He sat down on the couch next to Ned again, gripping his knees. So, what's up with you? Absolutely nothing, Ned said breathlessly, still starry-eyed. Then he blinked, seizing up silently. Wait, um, I may have told MJ that you're Spider-Man? What? Peter squawked betrayed. Ned! Ned threw his hands up. What? I thought I sent you to your death, and I did, sort of. Ned was visibly upset. I was grieving, okay? She was too. I needed her. I needed someone to know. I wasn't expecting you to be alive, Peter. Peter stared at him. Then he looked down at his hands. What a horrible situation he'd left his best friend in. But in the end, it doesn't matter, Peter said quietly. Spider-Man is gone. Mr. Stark took it away, locked up the only part of me that could ever make a difference. Ned didn't ask any questions about that even though Peter hadn't shared that part of the story. Maybe May had discreetly passed that information along. Peter felt pathetically relieved he didn't have to live that day one last time. Ned hesitated, then clapped a hand on Peter's shoulder. Peter? Ned started quietly, confidingly. He hesitated again, and for so long, Peter wondered if he lost his train of thought. Then suddenly, he burst out with, People get superpowers, like, all the time. Ned said that like it meant something inherently, like Peter should just get what he was talking about. So? 
Ned turned to him fully, expression determined. So, how many of them squared off against Thanos? How many of them fought off a bad dude's attempt to steal a bunch of high-tech weapons, then saved him from his own mess so a classmate didn't have to lose a dad? How many of them skipped out of clubs and field trips and prom to go out there and do the right thing? He gripped Peter's shoulder a little tighter. The part of you that made a difference isn't your superpowers. It's you. Peter felt like he'd been punched in the throat by the Hulk. He looked down quickly, away from his friend, unable to take what Ned was saying. Peter swallowed rapidly, grinding his teeth together to keep his expression neutral. Not that it was very effective. His ears were burning red. Knowing Peter was having a moment, Ned just continued like a bro. So, the way I see it, Spider-Man was cool, but it was also, like, an instant gratification thing, right? Immediate change, immediate results. But before Spider-Man, there was you, and your brain, and your geekiness, and your smarts, and your heart. That hasn't gone away, right? You can still make a difference. It just might take a while. Delayed gratification. <laughs> Peter rasped out with a laugh. Yeah. Ned waved his hand in a loose arc into the future. Invent your way into making the world a better place. That was plan A all along, right? Ever since... Peter was already smiling. He was finally able to look up. Ever since we watched that documentary on Mr. Stark's first miniaturized arc reactor. God, how long ago was that? Ned's parents had taken them to a showing. He remembered fighting in place, staring up in open-mouthed awe at Mr. Stark's giant face, open and passionate like he rarely was elsewhere, as the man spiritedly advocated for the use of technology and science in making the world a better place. That was Peter's dream. Then high school happened, and bullies, and uptick in crime rates, and... Ben. Right. Back to plan A. And for a moment, Peter's mind raced with all the bright possibilities ahead. Then Peter's face screwed up. There's no way I'm getting into MIT. Ned shrugged. So? You could get into ESU. Midtown's really tight with them, and Marita really likes you. You'll get so many recommendations. Ned pulled out his phone, his fingers flying over the screen. Plus, ESU is where it's at. Sure, Peter said with a flat sigh, mood dipping again. Dude, seriously, check out the faculty. Ned shoved his phone in Peter's hands. Dr. Kurt Connors? Norman Osborn? Otto Octavius and Reed Richards and Hank freaking McCoy? Even Bruce Banner gives guest lectures there sometimes. You don't see that guy traveling as far as MIT. He's barely in the country as is. Peter kept scrolling through the faculty. Maybe, he said quietly. No maybes about it, Ned shut out. He turned around facing Peter. This is it. This is you. Peter 2.0. Where's that camera of yours? Not seeing Peter's ubiquitous camera anywhere, he made do, framing Peter with his hands. I like Peter 1.0, Peter countered through a helpless smile. Ned dropped from his exaggerated photographer stance. A worried expression passed over his face. Peter, you know Spider-Man couldn't last forever, right? That was news to Peter. Why not? I'm pretty sure Liz's dad was ready to murder you that one time, Ned reminded him. Can you imagine how many enemies you'd pick up if you were Spider-Man for much longer? Peter never thought of it that way. It's probably better that it ended now, you know? Spider-Man was a learning experience. It helped more than just other people. It helped you. It got your priorities in check. You got to meet interesting people, learn interesting things. Now Spider-Man is over, and you have to take what you've learned and apply it to the real world. Ned lit up. Just like an internship! <laughs> Ned plucked the accelerated learner program binder from where it was wedged in the couch. 
After a beat, he put it in Peter's hand. You gotta start somewhere, dude. Behind him, and in the reflection of the television, he saw May giving Ned a thumbs up. Ned did well, not acknowledging the feedback. Peter watched the grayed reflection of his aunt for a moment longer before dropping his gaze back to the binder. Ned sat down with him, making interested noises. He was being ganged up on. He knew it. That still didn't stop him from opening the binder to the first section, reading over the introductory spiel. Welcome to Midtown High's Accelerated Learner Program. Since 2019, Midtown has been the leading provider of alternative parallel educations for individuals who have been involuntarily removed from their academic setting. The average student enrolled in this program will take anywhere from two to three years to graduate with their high school diploma. No. Two years was too long. He'd lost so much time already, and if he had any hope of catching up with Ned and MJ and the rest of his classmates, he had to put his all into this. He wasn't going to graduate in two years. He was going to graduate in one, less than one, if he could identify more classes to test out of. He had to get Plan A back on track. He didn't have any other choice. The End